Welcome back to the Big Ideas stage. Thanks all for coming. Uh, we're going to switch gears now and talk about DAOs, uh, which are very important to the future of organizations. And we're going to welcome to the stage uh, David Morris, Coindesk David Morris, Chief Insights Columnist. And I'll let him take it away. Thanks all. Oh, my, I guess I'm taking away. OK, everybody will just come on up. Actually, we're not going to do the whole introductions thing until we sit down. Uh, but thanks, everybody, for coming. We are here to talk about uh, DAOs and DAOs and their transformational potential for uh, community efforts and other good things. Um, so we're going to start. I'll just have, um, well, sorry, I should give a more formal introduction. This is DAOs for Humanity. Um, and we're going to talk about how we can use crypto economic structures to incentivize socially positive uh, outcomes and applications and economic flows. Um, and I have three panelists here. We have one illustrious panelist who will be a little bit late, so we might have to do a late introduction. But if I can just ask each of you to give, let's just stick to your name, your title, and your affiliation. Um, and then as we talk, you, we'll, we'll get to know more about your work. So let's start here. Hi, I'm Nathan Schneider, and I'm a professor of, professor, uh, professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Tanisi Poran. I'm a partner at The Ready. Hi, I'm Ellie Rainey. I'm a professor. Oh, we got about half of that. Try again. I'm Ellie Rainey. Nope, nope. Try one more time. <laughs> I'm a professor. Nope. Okay, we're going to need a new mic up here. I'm a professor at the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. Mic three is on in anticipation of Kevin showing up. Yeah. I actually could have done it too, but. Um, yeah, so we're going to start uh, at the very high level. So if each of you can just kind of, well, we're going to have a conversation here. It's going to flow, but let's start just talking in general terms at the high level about what you believe uh, DAOs bring to the table in terms of incentivizing positive behavior and creating groups and communities and all of the things that we know that they do. Yeah. This is clearly the magic mic. Um, so, yeah, what do I think it brings to the table? I'm really interested in the bottom-up experimentation and innovation that we're seeing in DAOs. Right now, we're up against a wave of critique around the financialization and centralization of crypto, like we're going to end up like Web2. And to me, that really denies the power that's going on, the, the realities and experiences of people who are in there building different kinds of societies. That's what I'm interested in. Um, I definitely agree with that, and my interest comes from uh, the ways that DAOs can open up different forms of social coordination that have often gotten bogged down by bureaucracy and what we call organizational debt. 
and being able to coordinate uh, communities. I particularly think about communities and regions that have been excluded purposefully from uh, these conversations in the past, DAOs uh, open up more opportunities for people to engage and coordinate within their communities and across communities. Now, I'm, I'm interested in economic democracy, which means how can we enable people to have more ownership and governance over their economic lives? And I've been um, involved for years in the cooperative movement, an earlier effort uh, to do just that. Um, DAOs represent to me an opportunity to continue that legacy, uh, to deepen uh, access and opportunities for economic democracy in people's everyday lives and in our broader systems. You know, a lot of this stuff could have been done more before. So I'm not of the opinion that this new technology changes everything in some way, but it does open the door where there are spaces of creativity and uh, activity that aren't really happening elsewhere. Experimentation in how things are owned and how things are governed that I don't see in a lot of other places. And for that reason, I'm really interested in what DAOs are bringing, just in that imagination, that space of, pl uh, of experimentation and that sense of play that's going on in so many of these, uh, of these spaces. Great, thanks. Okay, this one's working. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm Magic Mike. Um, so we know the sort of standard setup for a DAO is that you have a bunch of people. We usually, in block space, blockchain space, a lot of people will think of a DAO as an investment vehicle, right? You have a lot of people, they put in money of a certain form, they get governance tokens that represent shares of the DAO, and then they go and they invest in things. That's something that we're very used to. It was one of the first models of the DAO. Um, but let's talk... Let's sort of open up the, the, the box a little bit and talk in hopefully somewhat specific ways about other structural things that you can do with the DAO and how that helps an organization or a group come together and work together and collaborate and create good things. Sure. I think that the key thing about DAOs and crypto in general is that Exit is easy and entry is easy. And of course that creates onboarding and offboarding issues. One of the groups that I've been observing closely as an ethnographer is called SourceCred. And so they're a contribution tool for DAOs. And what's been quite fascinating about that is this is a token, well, I mean, it's a token opportunity, and it comes through, I think, also with the concept of soulbound tokens, to be able to show what people are doing and to show the network and relations between those actions in the background. And there's a lot of power in that. That's, that's how we get beyond these things. The only way that DAOs become resilient is by people living and experiencing them and participating in them. Because there are mixed motives and we need to be upfront about that. Yeah, and we'll definitely be talking a little bit more about financialization and some of the onboarding, offboarding issues. Denise. Yeah, um, I think over-reliance on tools and forgetting that these are a complex system made up of humans uh, and looking for ways that we can coordinate and uh, converse in uh, in peer-to-peer -peer manners and that might look like forming circles or pods um, and not relying entirely on tokens I think uh, there is a use and there's different ways that 
DAOs, I see so many DAOs being creative in the way they do tokenomics and token governance. Um, but I also encourage DAO operators to look at what other movements are doing. Um, like Nathan mentioned, the cooperative movement, look into community organizers um, and people who have been doing movement building and social coordination for a long time. You may be able to pull from that, uh, even though it's, it seems quite different. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to just look into other forms of governance and see where you can learn and uh, what you can use in a, in a complex system. So don't look for complicated solutions to complex problems. Lawyers have always talked about ownership as a bundle of rights. Um, you know, it's a weird, it's always been a kind of weird combination of things. Owning a home means something different than owning a car. There are different sets of responsibilities attached to, uh, to different kinds of ownership. Um, and that's different from owning equity. Um, tokens enable that bundle of rights to be much more deeply programmable. And so that, that can open the space of creativity. Um, it can open a space where whatever you can write in code becomes uh, an option rather than just the things that are stipulated in, in law and, and fairly rigid. Um, so, so that's very exciting. Um, another aspect that um, I think is developing right now is a turn from a design practices uh, that are focused on crypto economics, that are focused on building communities based largely around economic incentives, um, which has been the kind of overriding uh, design philosophy of DAOs. We're starting to see interest, I think, in a broader design space, where, where as the cooperative movement has in the past, um, DAOs are beginning to combine the economic and what might be called the political or the social, um, where DAOs are able to identify missions that they want to pursue, uh, values that they hold that are not reducible just to economic ownership rights, but actually enable people to ask, you know, what is a good society? What is a good community? Um, as that door opens, you know, I think this, this space becomes you know, all the more exciting as it breaks out of this kind of limited frame of, of purely economic incentives. Awesome. Yeah, um, Ellie already mentioned one, but I'm wondering if people have like particularly interesting DAO projects that they'd like to talk about. And the one that I'll throw out is, um, I, don't know, I don't know it in that much depth, but there's a DAO called Friends with Benefits that had a really uh, big surge of interest and they're essentially an artist collective that has people doing distributed projects and there's a certain amount of tokenized incentive behind that, um, but it, it turned into a real creative force. So I'm just curious, do people have uh, others that sort of embody this not strictly economic element? I actually want to raise one which has been a bit problematic, but it, it, it shows us that one of the power, powers of DAOs is that they provide these opportunities to learn, and that's Assange DAO. So that was a DAO that followed the classic model of fundraising to buy an NFT to support the Free Julian Assange movement. And from my understanding, there was a secondary token, which a whole group of people in China thought was a financial opportunity, and kind of aped in and <laughs> joined Assange DAO, and they raised a lot of money. But as a result, the, the governance purpose of this DAO became split between people who wanted to give all the money to the cause 
and those that wanted to do other things. But another way to look at this is that suddenly there's a whole group of people in China, a place that certainly doesn't understand journalistic freedom, where human rights is not an everyday thing that people are able or allowed to think about, now understand the plight of Julian Assange. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, a couple of DAOs that come to mind, I'm thinking of um, 40 Acres DAO, which is an artist collective, and also rethinking about uh, land ownership, particularly around reparations for black Americans. Uh, and I've read about a couple of other DAOs who are thinking about housing um, and what it looks like to think about land ownership in a more, or housing ownership in a collective, community-oriented way. Um, and then moving out of the, uh, out of you know, real land property and into the metaverse um, at DAO that I'm advising, Pangea, their goal is around uh, creating an equitable metaverse. So I think that's another thing that DAOs uh, and working in the blockchain really opens up is how do we think about land in, uh, in the real world and actual property, whether it's uh, for the purpose of, um, you know, saving the rainforest or reparations or in the metaverse, what kind of digital worlds are we trying to create? I might speak up for our, our missing co-panelists. Uh, uh, the Gitcoin DAO is, is, is interesting um, to me in particular as someone who's been working with um, kind of meat space companies uh, around uh, this idea of exit to community. How do you develop a, a trajectory for a company that involves sharing ownership or governance with, uh, with users? And for instance, Airbnb and Uber in 2018 asked the Securities and Exchange Commission, can we share equity with our loyal users? And SEC was like, ah, no, not really. We don't have a rule for that. Um, when Gitcoin did uh, a, a major, launched its DAO, um, along with a financing round, uh, they were able to distribute governance tokens to, uh, to their users, do something that uh, uh, you know, was not otherwise available in the, in the regular economy. And, and that, to me, is a very exciting opening. Another example, um, kind of an experimental one, is called OneHive. Um, and it's kind of a laboratory DAO of mechanism design. And, and they, they have a, a tool called Gardens that allows people to build DAOs based on their tool set. Um, and one thing I think is really interesting that they do is they have a covenant, a natural language kind of constitution of the mission and values of a DAO that's enforced by a crypto economic court. Um, and so this means that, that a DAO is able to not just, you know, for instance, in that case of Assange DAO, you could inscribe in that covenant, we are here to support, you know, journalistic freedom. And if you do anything that violates that, we can actually stop it. That ability to begin talking about values in the context of a DAO, I think, is an extremely important evolution. Awesome. Great ones for us to look into. So you mentioned Assange DAO. Um, a really similar example, obviously, was Constitution DAO, which um, sort of failed in its quest to buy a copy of the Constitution, and then afterwards, its uh, governance token experienced a, a really weird uh, bubble phenomenon, I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, but more generally and more fundamentally, um, when you look at something like a community currency, which is one of the inputs to how we think about community DAOs, those are intentionally difficult to transfer into and out of a dollar, right? Because part of the idea is you keep that community money local and crypto is extremely liquid. Like, 
so liquid it hurts. Um, and, and so what are the issues there when somebody can, at the drop of a hat, sell their shares in a DAO, sell their membership NFT, um, and then conversely, when all of those uh, selling and buying opportunities make these into uh, tools for financial speculation? Like, how does that threaten this model, or maybe not? I think another case of this was with perhaps Data.NYC, who were one of the original NFT experiments. And they faced issues where people were just speculating on the NFTs, but really the purpose of that community was to provide something like a universal basic artist's income and to support collaboration and community. Uh, and so they kind of found themselves with, again, these competing uh, motives and aspirations of people in that DAO. Ultimately, um, it, this is the test of a DAO. These things can be transient, and that's okay. And I think that the strong ones will be strong for things which matter for other reasons, because people are there because, like all communities, they feel a sense of affiliation or an altruistic uh, determination to change the world or whatever, whatever it is. It could be anything. So um, to be transient is okay, but you need to find what is, what is going to make that community resilient. And Dada has absolutely done that. What comes to mind, I'm, a, I'm an organizational designer, so I first start thinking about what are the structures and design principles we would need to create that type of environment. Um, and I think about the foundational agreement, so uh, what is, it could be formal governance or working agreements among a small group of people if you're starting out early. And what are the principles that you're building upon? Do you want it to be uh, intentionally exclusionary um, and rooted in a certain purpose? Or can it be more fluid and flexible? And I think uh, we can make those decisions and there's opportunities and spaces for a very fluid, open uh, type of membership. And then there's opportunities to be more intentional and say this is uh, the purpose that we're uh, headed for. If, you, if you're not interested in that, if this isn't something you want to be part of anymore, there's a simple way to offboard and uh, remove yourself from that system. I do, every, every system and every container isn't for every person, and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, exit is just one of those things you can play with and program, right? Uh, Matt Pruitt uh, at Radical Exchange has done some really interesting writing lately about the value of, of um, high exit costs in community currencies. And, and I think that's uh, uh, you know, really wise to explore. In some cases, that's a good thing. In some cases, it might not be such a good thing. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's again, a part of the palette. Uh, Tanisi, you mentioned that you are an organizational designer. And Nathan, you've done some uh, consulting with companies, I believe. So can we talk just briefly, specifically, about um, like commercial applications for you know, maybe not necessarily for-profit companies, but maybe, um, but also just like efforts to build things, efforts to make money. Um, so, so is it different or are there areas of overlap? How do you think about that? Yeah, um, I definitely think there are opportunities in a lot of areas of overlap, uh, whether it is a traditional for-profit company that wants to uh, become more autonomous and put more power into the hands of the workers. Uh, I, 
I'm, we're seeing ways and experimenting uh, with ways in, in our work um, with, with clients and internally to how can we adopt some, how can organizations adopt some DAO principles and practices if they're not ready to fully transition yet. And then I think for newer organizations and newer businesses, I particularly think about uh, the global south, uh, who many countries have been excluded from the traditional economic system. DAOs can open up opportunities to uh, create economic stability, have more self-determination, and play in the global economic market in a way that wasn't possible before. Yeah, and I mean, clearly there are so many commercial DAO projects out there that are in many ways like investor clubs or their or their worker co-ops or I, I mean, there are all sorts of different versions of this maybe we need more distinctions uh, uh, on that DAO concept right I mean it's a very weird box that we're talking about here um, generally they're not especially decentralized autonomous and it's unclear what kind of organization they are so the term kind of sucks um, and, uh, and it lacks so much specificity about what the thing is. It contains so much. Um, I, I imagine we're going to get better language for all this stuff. Yeah, a DAO is a Discord with a token, right? What's that? A DAO is a Discord with a token. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, it, it, the opportunity of blockchains is that we have the underlying crypto economic incentives that provide security, censorship res resistance, all of that. On top of that, we have the modula modularity, tools that can be taken from one arena, even if it's a commercial arena, into these non-commercial spaces or intentional communities. What that means is that it's providing access and abilities and capabilities to groups that were otherwise denied it. So in the Source Craig case study that I mentioned, there were people who were getting paid to work on software in a permissionless organization. People of color, people of diverse gender backgrounds, all the rest of it, who wouldn't probably have gotten jobs in Silicon Valley because their CVs or their experiences didn't match up, all right? They were getting paid to work on a software product. That's important. Thank you. Um, so, you mentioned access and um, barriers, and obviously there are a lot of different kinds to actually applying this technology and these ideas. I mean, if you're a community organizer, like hiring a Solidity dev is, is not an option, right? So, um, what work is being done now or what should be done to try and onboard community organizations, social projects, um, especially those who don't necessarily have a, a lot of technical experience, and also maybe not just the technical onboarding, but conveying to people immediate benefits and making sure that they actually get something out of this rather than just being guinea pigs and just so stories that get told to venture capitalists. I can give an example of this. I've been involved in a humanitarian effort to use verifiable credentials in Australia called the Trust Alliance. It was established by the Australian Red Cross. So they started out, this is definitely not a tech solution looking for a problem. They decided to take on a really hard problem, which is sexual misconduct in the humanitarian sector, and to use code of conduct credential to try and overcome that. 
that project is kind of stalled. And it's stalled for interesting reasons. Not because the tech didn't work, it did. And there was absolutely a willingness in these organizations to try it. But there is so much compliance around something like sexual misconduct, so much red tape, and for good reason, so many issues. And, and, and you know, it, it's now Interpol that's been brought in to try and deal with this problem on a global scale. I look back at that project, and it's still continuing. It's not over. And I think, why didn't we start with something easy? Why didn't we start with a bushfire? A, a credential just says, this person was in this place at that time. So the Red Cross has given them a credential, and now they go to Care Australia, and they can get a service there as well, because we know that they were in that place at that point in time. We always start with the hard problems. And I think those of us who are on the design side need to actually let, let's think about incremental change and work with these organizations to show them like, the benefits in, in a slow, responsible, moving at the speed of trust way. Yeah, to build on that, I think uh, small moves and experimentation in lower stakes uh, environments can be really helpful. I think uh, my background is in community organizing and movement work and uh, the messaging a lot of the time around crypto, around DAOs, uh, it doesn't seem like a space that's welcoming for our communities. Um, so I think slow, small experiments um, and showing folks that there isn't one way to be successful, there isn't one way to play in this system, uh, can be really helpful. Um, and it's not just a space where you need to have a lot of money. I think that can be a really easy point of interest, but what are the ways that we can create access and invitation for folks that don't have thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest and get started? That's where my mind uh, goes, and that's where I'm really interested um, in learning more about and, and supporting that experimentation of how can we make this accessible for the people who think that it's not for them um, and welcome their critique and welcome their questions in this space because people have been burned before. And uh, I think if there are experimentations and small moves that can make it a, a, a safer and more accessible space for people to play in, I would love to, to continue to see more of that. Absolutely. I'm aiming to that. Um, I, my lab is doing a project now called Sacred Stacks where we're working with uh, a group of communities around the world that are kind of largely low tech um, and but are curious about these tools we invited communities that are curious we got way more applications than we knew what to do with um, so it was very striking that there is interest among really diverse communities in learning about this stuff but also in our process we're making sure to center those communities not the tech and um, you know, a guide for me that I've been thinking about a lot in this is a, an old handbook from before blockchain blew up um, uh, called Discotech that came out of the Allied Media um, uh, Network in, in Detroit. And uh, Discotech is kind of an alternative framework to a hackathon, um, recognizing that hackathons often you know, uh, attract a certain kind of people and not others, don't serve a lot of diverse needs, um, and, and the discotheque framework is all, all about bringing people in, helping people feel that they, you know, they're welcome, that their skill gaps will, will be met, they'll be met where they are, rather than this kind of fake meritocracy idea that you, know, you gotta just catch up, and if you, if you don't catch up, well, sorry. Um, and, and, and that kind of framework, I think, is really critical for this stuff. And we gotta re remember you know, what happened with earlier waves of, of internet tech, is like, who ended 
up making things user-friendly, like who took over these networks, the big companies that were willing to do the work to make things understandable um, and to get, get their stuff in front of people. And uh, you know, we need to recognize that unless you know, our community projects and our software projects take on that work, you know, someone else is going to do it, and they're, you know, they're going to really be able to capitalize on that, on that challenge of accessibility. That last mile challenge is, you know, is, is where the real value is. Awesome. Um, I think we are out of time, and I'm going to take the chair as uh, the symbolic shepherd took, <laughs> pulling us off stage as we tap dance furiously. Um, does anybody want to make a last couple comments? Anything you want to share with the audience before we go? And by the way, uh, Kevin Iwaki, wherever you are, we miss you, so. Just to say that let's embrace the fact that there are going to be different approaches for different kinds of problems. So retroactive public goods funding will work well for software and things that are going to benefit the Ethereum ecosystem, and I totally support what Optimism is doing there. But then you have things like Filecoin Green, which are using different affordances of this technology, like verifiability and incentivizing data, provider, data storage providers to have green practices. And, and then DAOs fulfill different roles as well. We need to try to understand each of these approaches and what works, because there is no single approach to the world's problems. Yeah, uh, and I would just say keep experimenting and finding new ways to create the type of worlds that you want to see. Uh, and remember that there's no, no right way. There's probably a third way to explore. I, I, I just want to issue like a bit of a challenge. We have to recognize that these tools are powerful and they are dangerous. <laughs> just as Web2 has uh, uh, created huge humanitarian crises and uh, political crises. Web3 is even more powerful because there's money attached to it. Um, I think we need to start taking on the challenge of embedded human rights in, in this code, figuring out how to make sure that the worst kinds of abuses um, simply can't happen on these tools, and to, and, and to stop pretending that everything will be okay and work itself out. This is dangerous stuff. We need to start um, designing with humanity, with all of its its value and its, its um, the, the, the evil it is capable of in mind. Well, a grim vision of the dark future. Um, but I will also, as my, my last uh, comment, I will say, you know, this is a way that people who have been in this space for a while can uh, leverage their skills and knowledge in a very socially positive way, which, to be blunt, is somewhat scarce within the space. So, you know, uh, those of you who have those skills, and look at the world and see things that need to be changed, this is a way that you can at least try and do that and see if it happens and works. So thank you to all of our panelists, um, and I, uh, I thanks to everybody for being here today.